And then Jack's gonna stay here because um, we, we gather before church to pray together and we always ask at the end, you know, is there anything God's put on your heart uh, for our church? And so I think there's two things, I didn't tell you about this, but, but there were some things at your table that were very consistent mm. that I think are important for everyone, but then there was something on your heart that I feel like everyone should hear. So come over so that the video people can see you. Yeah, I can share. So yeah, as we were praying this morning and then we were praying and then we get together in a small group and share what everyone in the small group was hearing. And it was really cool at our table, um, at our small group, it was really consistent, kind of what everyone, Kim and others heard um, of, and someone had a picture of Play-Doh, of kids with Play-Doh and it being kind of like lumpy and whatnot and then being rolled out smooth um, and that that process of being rolled out can be uncomfortable um, but it can make something beautiful and it was like God had been speaking to each one kind of about um, change in the church and someone else felt specifically to bring in the younger generation, to bring in my generation into this body that it is going to be uncomfortable. And it, like at times it'll be painful as God molds the church, um, but he's doing something beautiful and that it, that it will take um, some, some change that at times will be unpleasant, um, but to be able to shape something really beautiful. And it was cool because each person pretty much in our group heard like a different component of that. Um, So it was really cool. And then I additionally felt, just as we were praying, I felt um, the Lord put on my heart uh, that he's a redeemer. And um, I felt really strongly just to share this with everyone in this church. I know this church is a, um, like in general, an older demographic where a lot of you guys have lived with the Lord a long time. And I just felt really strongly in my heart that he's a redeemer and it doesn't matter how far along you are or how long you've lived with something, it's not too late. Like the Lord wants to redeem things in each one of us, no matter where we're at in the journey in our lifespan. Um, It's not too late for him to redeem things like uh, marriages or sicknesses, um, things that we're discontent with, like the Lord is a redeemer and no matter where you're at in the journey, um, I just felt this sense that he wants to continue redeeming things um, and it's never too late. Awesome. Thanks for that, Jack. Uh, Hands up if you want to see God redeem stuff in your life, right? Some people didn't put their hands up. Come on. You're in the wrong place. Like, no. Um, no, it's good. Yeah, we we want that. We receive that. We honor that word, and we say, God, yeah, bring it. And now our job is to posture ourselves to be able to receive what He wants to do in our midst. So. With that in mind, uh, let's jump into the next part of Acts. Can you believe we're only like four chapters away from the end? We're we're almost there. Um, I think I've put this in an email, but in case you don't know, in a couple of weeks I head to Scotland, so we're gonna take a little pause. We're gonna have some other people speaking and then we'll jump in and finish when I get back. It's gonna be great. Um, But we're in this part of the journey where Paul is focused on Rome. He's been in Jerusalem. As we looked at last week, he was shipped off to Caesarea because some people had taken a vow that they weren't going to eat until he was dead. Um, And so he's in this process of making his way to declare the truth in Rome. And and all of the challenges
chapters that we're going to look at from here is basically multiple court cases that Paul is involved with where he has to testify, defend himself and testify to the truth. So we're continuing in that story this week um, and we're going to look at, at one of the things that's really evident in this week's passage that the best word I have is integrity. Like this passage highlights the integrity of Paul and what that means for the mission of God. Um, so here's a definition of integrity. There are two elements to integrity. It's a word I use a lot. I think we focus on the first definition and often miss the second definition and the two are very closely connected in our spiritual journey. So this, this, this word and this definition is gonna frame how we read this passage. Um, so the first uh, definition of integrity, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles or moral uprightness. So this is in the church the way we tend to talk about integrity most. If someone's a person of integrity, they're a person that's living the right way. Um, but the second part of integrity, the state of being whole or undivided. If you talk about a bridge having integrity, it means the bridge is structurally sound and not gonna fall apart. It's got nothing to do with morality. Um, but in our pursuit of integrity, there's two pieces to this. There is our wholeness in Christ, and then there's our moral uprightness as we live. And it's our wholeness that enables our moral uprightness, and it's our moral uprightness that makes us walk in wholeness. Because when we're morally not upright, when we're walking opposite of God's design is when our integrity begins to break apart. So we're gonna see this pattern through what we're about to look at. We're gonna read all of Acts 24. Um, and here's, there's a contrast being set up. This is about Paul and vindicating Paul and vindicating the gospel. So you're gonna see this clear contrast as we read. On one hand, you've got Paul, this man of integrity, um, of wholeness and of devotion. And then you've got the Jewish leaders, you've got the Roman authorities that he's gonna be interacting with. And the whole story is just comparing both of them. The integrity of Paul with the mess of both the Jewish and Gentile rulers. So let's, let's read this and see if you notice some of these issues that are in here. So Acts chapter 24, starting in verse one. Five days later, so this is after he's been taken and put in prison in Caesarea. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their, challenge, their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. This is complete brown nose and if you didn't know this. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I will gladly make my defense. Let me turn my page. Oh, my page isn't turning. Let's get in here. <laughs> 
You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. However, I admit that as that I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets and I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clean before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews in the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias comes, he said, eh, I will decide your case then. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Da, da, da. <laughs> So before we look at the specifics of Paul's integrity, I want to take a moment, because it's easy when you read like a big passage of scripture like this, you hear the charges, you see Paul speaking. I, I want to take a moment and just look at what the charges were and then what Paul says in response to each of these charges uh, that he gives in defense, because there's some interesting little tidbits in here as we look at it. So the first charge, we have found this man to be a troublemaker. I love this because the word for troublemaker is the word for plague. This dude is a plague, like a disease to be avoided. Um, and the reason I like that is because of the plagues. The plagues are these really nasty things for the Egyptians, but it was the hand of God orchestrating his will to redeem his people. So in using this word to try and critique Paul, they're actually prophesying over themselves that he is God's hand working in the world and that they don't like it. Isn't that really clever? God can even speak through them to condemn themselves. I love it. Um, his defense though, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem. These guys are saying I'm a plague. I've only been here for 12 days, right? I'm not a plague. Um, I went up to Jerusalem. I went to worship. 
And then a little bit later, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring for my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. So they're saying, this guy's a plague. He's saying, not the case. Like, I've been gone for several years. I've been back for 12 days. I was worshiping and I was providing for the poor. If that's a plague, then I hope our church is a plague, right? (laughs) Be a plague. Charge number two, he says, we found this man to be stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. So first of all, this is great because these guys in in convicting Paul are explaining the success of the ministry that he's involved with. He's having this effect all over the world. Completely isn't true because in all of the places Paul's been, he hasn't stirred up a single riot. The Jews in the city have stirred up riots or when he's in Ephesus, it's the Gentile money makers that are stirring up riots. So all these other people are stirring up riots. We know it's not him, but we've found him stirring up riots all over the among Jews all over the world, his response, my accusers did, find, did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city and they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. Now remember, they're in front of Felix. There's a bunch of them that have come. It's, it's leading elders. They've hired this lawyer, Tertullus, um, to present their case. The, the chief priest is there. Like they're there standing before and he's like, no one can bring a charge against me. And then it's like cricket. I'm like, if you've got evidence, where is it? He's going, there's no evidence. There's no witnesses. It's just all hot air. Um, They can't prove it. And they're right in the place where they could, and they're not doing it. Charge number three, they say this man is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Paul doesn't either like admit, he doesn't say this is true, he doesn't say it's false, but here's how he responds. I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. The way, the truth, and the life. The only right way. They call it a sect, but it's not. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God that these men themselves have. Um, again, I love what's going on here because there's a clever little play in words because this word admit, like the, the Greek word homologeto is the word for conf- confession. So he's standing in a court case in front of Felix and he's like, these things aren't true, but I'll confess. I follow the way. I believe in the law and the prophets. I'm not like you, Roman guy. Like I'm a Jew. Yep. I follow Jesus. I confess it. Hands up to this one. Um, I love it. And this moment where he goes on to to explain his faith in the resurrection and his hope in Jesus. Just such a beautiful moment. The fourth charge, he even tried to desecrate the temple, so he seized him. Now this is serious. Um, This is a a death penalty situation. Um, Rome has afforded certain privileges and protections to the Jewish people, so if he's guilty of desecrating the temple, there's some serious issues there. And then Paul you know, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring uh, my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. So not only did I not desecrate the temple, but I'd gone through ritual cleansing according to the law. I was bringing offerings and I was bringing alms for the poor. Like I was going above and beyond what's required of me uh, and living out my faith. And all the way through these challenges, and Paul's defense is 
is this lingering kind of tacit moment, and it's this. If, if these things were true, where are the witnesses? Right? These guys have an issue. They're all in agreement that they don't like the things I've, I've done. They're, they're, they're like throwing their voices in with these accusations, but not one single shred of evidence. And why is that important? Because Luke is writing the book of Acts to Theophilus and to the church to say this is so that you can understand with certainty the things that were taught and done through Jesus and in the early church. So this moment is a moment of defense. These leaders within the Jewish nation are standing before Felix with Paul. They're making all these accusations against him. They don't have a shred of evidence. And Paul is able to shake down every moment uh, of the accusations they bring the defense that no, and, and I'm pretty sure Paul could then run and grab a bunch of people, even the priest in the temple that went through the ritual cleansing with him, who could say, no, this is the case, this stuff is not true. So all of this is vindicating Paul and his integrity, so that as he stands before these Gentile people, that the gospel is seen to be true because his testimony is not marred. So here, his integrity, his commitment to Jesus, his obedience, his effort to walk in God-honoring ways is all vindicated through this encounter with Felix. Um, I forgot to say, I love that one moment where he's like, you know, unless it's this one issue that you have, that like I stood in front of the, the Sanhedrin and I said, it's because of the resurrection of the dead. That was actually a little jab and saying to Felix, hey, I stood before them in their court and they couldn't come to an agreement. <laughs> so not even they could figure out something wrong. So now they're over here with only half their group trying to assert that I did something wrong. So uh, it's, it's all messed up. So the Jewish leaders are walking in deception. They're making up lies to hurt this guy. And we're gonna see that the, the way Felix is walking in this situation, all of them walking in with no integrity, uh, swept by whatever thing in the world grabs their attention, uh, hungering for control and power. And then you've got Paul, this man who stands solidly on the truth um, in, in contrast to the way that they're living. So I want to look at just five things in this passage, um, and, and I, don't, I don't sit down and go, I'm gonna come up with five things, right? I'm like, I look through the passage and I'm like, this is one, this is one, this is one, this is one. So there's five in this passage. These are not arbitrary numbers. You might look and find something else that I've missed, um, but just so you know, I'm not just making up a number and plucking it out of thin air. I'm trying to find what's in there so that we can share it. So here's five elements of Paul's life that I would say contribute to him being a man of integrity. So if we want to be men and women of integrity whose lives support the communication of the gospel and don't stand against it, um, then we'll want to put these practices and these priorities in place in our own life. So the first one I've called faithful worship. You know, he says, you can easily verify no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Um, later on, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors. Uh, and then later I came to Jerusalem to, to present offerings. So like Paul's whole being is shaped around his worship of this God that is the basis for the foundation and the integrity of his life. And I, 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 put, I call this faithful worship because the word that comes up all the time is worship. I really wanted to call this uh, something around identity. 
like a secure identity in God is really what this is about. Worship, knowing his truth, understanding who God is, understanding God's plan in the world, understanding the role of God's people, understanding who Paul was and what his role was in that plan, understanding his calling and his gifting and the mission that he was called to engage in. That all came out of his worship of God. So this idea of a faithful worship of him and confident identity and our, our, our identity as sons and daughters of the father who sent into the world to reach out to his other children. Um, that's his identity. That's the basis of everything he does. And he's got this like unflinching focus on Jesus that shapes everything he does. And all the decisions he's making as he's in the temple, do I offer a sacrifice or not? Do I cleanse myself? Do I participate in the Jewish uh, rites here? It's like my eyes are on God. My eyes are on Jesus. I'm going to make this decision to make sure that he is glorified and there's not a single part of me is going to stand in the way of what he's called me to do. And it's this undivided devotion. You contrast that to Felix and the Jewish leaders. They're all over the place. Is it about worshiping God? Is it about their laws? Is it about their, I'm a Sadducee and I'm a Pharisee and so I believe this and you believe that? Is it, is it about, well, this guy's teaching stuff. We don't like it. We're going to shoot him down. Like, is it about the, the, the being praised and honored and so they wear the big fancy outfits and they patrol through with these big prayers so people can see them? Like, what's their eye fixed on? Themselves, the world, money? And then, and then you look at Felix. It's like, oh, I don't want to upset the Jews. Don't want to upset my boss. Don't want to upset my wife. And so he's like, oh. like Paul is unflinching because of his faithful worship. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. His identity comes from that place. Um, and here Paul is the one accused standing solidly on the truth while Felix is flustered trying to pander to the different groups that want his attention and his affection or whose favor he's longing for. So are you a person of faithful worship? Do you have undivided devotion on your Savior Jesus? If you want to be a person of integrity, it starts there. Number two, Paul is a man of clean conscience. He says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before men. This word strive here, it's the only place this verb appears in the whole New Testament. Uh, there are other places in, in Greek writing where it comes up, so we, we know what it means. Um, but it is like, like he, Paul talks about in other places, it's almost like that athletic training, disciplining, hard work, effort, engagement, like exerting yourself towards a goal. There's another sort of kind of domain of meaning that's to do with like art and adornment. Um, and so making it look good in the right way. So he's <clears throat> adorning himself with a clean conscience. He is exerting every piece of energy and effort he has um, to, to, to walk in, in integrity and clear conscience before God and man. And so how do you do in that area? How much effort do you exert in having a clean conscience? There's lots of us who like, you know, you have those things kind of stirring inside and it happens like when you're listening to someone speaking, it happens when you're in a conversation with a friend, when you're reading the Bible, when you're looking at a devotional, whatever, when you're listening to the news and you have that moment of conviction and then we go, yeah, I should really work on that. So what's for dinner, <laughs> right? 
not a whole lot of effort into maintaining that clean conscience? Are you quick to apologize to people when you've upset them? Are you quick to correct the wrong words that you spoke when you spoke them? Are you quick to admit to people that the thing that you told them was God's truth actually isn't and was your interpretation and opinion rather than the truth of scripture? Uh, Are you quick to look at the things that you've done in your past and say, hey, yeah, I hurt someone, I should probably put that right. Um, Are we willing to exert the the energy and the effort? One of the things that's hard, I I hear it in Christianity here a lot, especially in older Christians. This is a line I hear a lot, and it's kind of like half of what Paul says. It's almost like I'm happy to keep my conscience clear before God, but it doesn't matter with men. I hear this, you know, I've lived with Jesus a long time. I've earned the right to speak my peace. So it doesn't matter if you like it, doesn't matter if it hurts you, like I've earned the right because I'm old now. And then we just allow ourselves to hurt people round about and use it as an excuse. Like my age means I no longer have to honor scripture. My age means I no longer have to look at, uh, uh, at my words and, and speak them with gentleness and respect. You know, we'll get there. Uh, here's, here's a couple of other scriptures. This is so consistent in Paul's writing. I think this, this commitment he's made to have a clean conscience before God and men comes up in so many other places. I mean, in Romans, you've got this great part, six, seven, and eight, where it's the battle of the flesh and the spirit. And you've got this amazing passage, Romans eight starts with, you know, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about this spirit that intercedes in our weakness. But in the middle of all that, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And in the middle of this like three chapter segment, it's like put to death your flesh and follow the spirit. It's about clean conscience. And when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, I strike a blow to my body. Older translations say, I buffet my body or I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Like I'm working on myself. I wanna make sure there's not a single thing in me that's gonna stand in the way of the gospel work, that's gonna stand in the way of me showing Jesus, who, showing the world who Jesus is. Um, again, he's writing to Corinthians that the, this is his, the one we've got at 2 Corinthians. This is at least his fourth letter to them. This is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so not relying on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. So like this radical commitment to having a clean conscience. He goes as far as to tell people don't let the sun set on your anger. Like deal with it. Keep short accounts. Love is patient and kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. Keep the accounts short. Work on this stuff and deal with it. So the question is, are we the kind of people like Paul that are striving to make sure our conscience is clear before God and others? Or are we like Felix who knows that Paul's innocent and is like, I'll make the decision tomorrow when Lysias comes in and then we can have the conversation then. Like, Paul is unshaking in his desire to walk in purity. Uh, the, the leaders round about him are compromising constantly. Where are you on that spectrum? And what are the things in your conscience presently that are not clean that you need to clear both with God and with the people round about you? 
Related to that one, number three, um, the whole case and Paul's whole defense is built on this idea of him having a clean record or a clean reputation. Um, and so he says, I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. My life proves to you, my record shows you that this is not the kind of person that I am. Do you have a clean record with the people around about you? And specifically with the people not in the church? Are you known as someone with a clean record and a clean reputation to the people out there? Now that doesn't mean that you've not done anything wrong ever, but that you own it, that you admit it, that you're vulnerable with where you're at. Now this is another important theme as Paul writes and, and, and then as Peter writes, like these things come up all the time. And this is Peter, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens in the land to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So this is, this is them looking at, the, Peter's looking at a church that's been persecuted by the world roundabout for their faith, uh, and horribly so. This is like Christians put on stakes and burned as candles to light up the night sky. Like, and this is it, live such good lives among the people out there that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds. So when you're out there, it's like, are, are the people in your spheres, your neighbors, extended family, people at work, people in the hobbies that you're a part of, do they see your good deeds? so that when they hear you speak God's truth and they go, well, that sounded really rude or really mean or really intolerant, they go, but I know their character. That's not how they live. So I must be misunderstanding something. Let's not let our way of being hinder the gospel. Um, you know, elders, this is Paul's words to, to Timothy as he's talking about elders. What, like, good reputation comes in here. Um, now, Put aside the theology of who can be an elder and who's qualified and is a man or a woman, whatever. Let's just talk about elders in the church, older people who carry maturity and wisdom in the church. This should be true of you, whether you're in a position of an elder or whether you're just an elder in the church. This is something that all of us young people should be aspiring to be, whether we ever hold the position of elder or not. We wanna be this kind of person, he says to Timothy. If anyone in the church desires to be an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task, it's a good thing. An overseer then must be above reproach. Clean conscience with God and men, good reputation with others, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not dependent on wine, not violent, but gentle, peaceable, free of the love of money. An overseer must manage his own household well and keep his children under control with complete dignity. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert because he might become conceited and fall under the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. I mean, that's a high list. Like if you're someone that aspires for leadership, you should be able to look at this list and check them all off. 
And if, there's, if you're in leadership and you're looking at this list and going, there's some of these that I'm not doing very well at, then you need to come and talk to me about it. Not so that we can say, well, you can't be in leadership then, but so we can say, how do we come around you and help you be this kind of person so that you can lead the church where it needs to go? Are you someone striving to have good reputation and a clean record, especially with people out there? It's very easy to have a good reputation with your church people. And it's very easy to have a good reputation with your theological camp. And it's very easy to have a good reputation with the people that like the same hobbies as you do. But do you have a good reputation with the people from different religions, from different political persuasions, from different colors and nationalities? How do they view your reputation? Because those are the outsiders that Paul is expecting us as believers to walk in a clean reputation with. Number four, uh, another example of Paul's integrity and the practices that lead him there is what I would call sensitive proclamation. And I've mentioned this a few times. But you this amazing moment. Paul is talking with Felix and it says he talked, this is written so casually, he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. Uh, we've seen all the way through Acts the way that Paul tailors what he speaks to the audience that he's with. So when he's with the Jews, he's running through the Old Testament. When he's in Athens, he's looking at their poets and this altered and unknown God. When he's before the Sanhedrin, he's talking theological debate. Right here, he's with Felix. Do you know who Felix was? He's the governor. He's married to a woman called Drusilla that when he met her was married to someone else. He wooed her and brought her to be his, Josephus says, third wife. So he didn't need, he didn't need her, he already had two. One's enough for me. <laughs> if you can manage two, hats off to you. <laughs> so he has his two wives, he sees this woman, he thinks she's gorgeous, he woos her, he brings her into the fold. So what is this? This is adultery. This is him having no ability to control his sexual urges and taking exactly what he wants. Scripture says Drusilla, his wife, is a Jew. So she understands God's requirements that adultery is a sin punishable by death under the law. So here's Paul, who's so sensitive as he's in all of these conversations. This is another place where he's sensitive to God's voice in the situation. He's standing in front of Felix, who's stolen someone else's wife, uh, is now married to, married to her. Um, she's a Jew. She's committing adultery and walking away from God's will. This is a guy who is, is known by all the historians as just evil, uh, Tacitus said that like he's he came from slavery and he's got the the, the the engages in every kind of wickedness and evil with the mentality of a slave uh, and then Josephus is like this guy was just uh, I can't remember the actual word he used just wicked and evil and perverted in every way that he could be and so Paul as soon as he's in front of him they've had the court case now he's he's in private with Felix and in private with his wife Drusilla and what does he do he starts confronting the sin in their life He's like, this is my sensitivity to you. The thing standing in front of you getting access to the gospel is this thing that you're doing. And so he talks about righteousness and God's way that you're supposed to live. He talks about self-control to the, this man who can't control himself. And he talks about the judgment that will come, both for Drusilla being a woman that's a Jew who's now in an adulterous relationship, and for him who's committing all of these atrocities uh, in the name of, of the, the empire that he follows. So he's sensitive. Paul 
Paul takes every opportunity to declare the gospel. He tailors his message to the audience in front of him. Sometimes he's gentle, sometimes he's forceful and direct, but it's always related to their curiosity around the gospel, and it's always related to how much they know of God's law or not. Um, And always, 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 and he does it here again, it says he proclaimed to them his faith in Jesus Christ. He's not proclaiming to them his views on sexuality. He's not proclaiming to them his views on uh, American politics. He's not proclaiming his views on the role of women in the church. He is proclaiming Jesus dead and resurrected, and that's where we're supposed to be focusing our attention. Um, We end up fixated on all these other topics. It ruins our reputation with outsiders. We no longer have a platform to share the gospel. When if we could just be like Paul, where we speak with sensitivity, we listen to God, we challenge the sin when God says so, and we focus all our energy in helping people understand the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And at the end, a resurrection is coming. This passage says, of both the righteous and the wicked, there's gonna be an accounting that people are gonna have to make, and there's gonna be some results of that that some people are not gonna be happy with. This moment, in his sensitivity, he's directly addressing their sin, enough that Felix is afraid, says, not for now, but then continues to invite him back repeatedly for two years. Because I've said this lots of times, we like the feeling of conviction, right? We like that moment when something just prods on that little thing inside, and we're like, oh, God's speaking, and there's something I gotta do, and then what's for dinner? <laughs> we gotta move past that sense of conviction into making our conscience clean before God and others. And the last part here is, is Paul's honesty. You could say honesty, you could say integrity. Um, Oh, thanks for that, Eric, I missed that one. First Peter 3, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect, keeping what? A clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, for it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We're supposed to be able to speak the truth to people with lives lived in such a way and with words in such a way that they can't accuse us of being evil. And that's not the way it's functioning in this part of the world right now. People are accusing us of being horrible, evil people in the church because of the way we're living, treating people, and how that impacts then their inability to receive the truth that we want to share out of love. So yeah, number five, Paul's honesty. Um, I also wrote no shortcuts. Paul was brought frequently for two years in the hopes that he would offer a bribe to Felix. Two years Paul is imprisoned and didn't give in to the temptation to give a bribe. I'm pretty sure it was clear. Two years of that, I'm pretty sure there were hints. I'm pretty sure the guards would ask him questions. Just pass him a few hundred bucks and we're good. Um, he'll, he'll turn a blind eye. Two years, Paul resisted the, the temptation to compromise in order to walk in integrity. He was not willing to shortcut the process that God had put in place. God had been clear, to Rome you will go, you will testify, I'll protect you. You will testify in Rome, so he's got nothing to fear. He knows the scriptures, he knows Joseph's story, he knows Joseph was in prison for years and years and years until God's will came to pass. So Paul is, does not have any fear. He could take the easy way out, 
Um, but he chooses every step of the way to walk in integrity. So this passage is setting up this, this character of Paul as we're getting to the end, where, I mean, we're gonna see at the end, we don't really know how the story ends with Paul, according to Acts. We've got other historians that explain what happens. But this is happening. Um, he's, he's on trial, and, and Luke is showing that in every step of the way, Paul is vindicated because the type of life that he lives, because the cleanness of his conscience, uh, the sensitivity with which he proclaims, and the way he never takes shortcuts Um, as he does faithfully what God has called him to do. So this is an invitation to be self-examining and as we're singing the last song, like this is not judgment, this is reflect. Where is your conscience not clear with God and others? Where have you been insensitive in your communication of the gospel? Talk with Jesus about that. And then as we sing the song, uh, allow the words of the song to wash over you and play part of that cleansing. We strive to be a church of integrity that are the kinds of people who pave the way for the gospel to be spoken into the lives of those who need it. Let me pray as the band comes up. God, the beautiful thing about this is Paul is a man of integrity because you are a God of integrity. You are perfect, you are true, you are just. There is not a single blemish in you. Uh, You've never thought of doing wrong. Uh, You're always good and kind and gracious. And and then in our fallenness, we care more about ourselves and that means we do the opposite. Yet Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life of integrity. He pours out his spirit on a guy like Paul and Paul is enabled to walk in a new level of integrity. And so God, your call to us is to imitate you, uh, to follow you. Uh, And it's to imitate Jesus in that process as we strive to be people whose identity is rooted in you, whose worship is for you, whose consciences are clear and who are sensitive as we proclaim your gospel boldly to the people around about us. So God, do a cleansing work in us and send us to be powerful and effective. In Jesus' name, amen.